Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome my good friend, Eric Fanning, the president and CEO of the Aerospace Industries Association to the program. He served as the 22nd Secretary of the United States Army, as well as other top jobs across the Air Force, the Navy, and the Office of Secretary of Defense. And he is also an alumni uh, of uh, the House as a staffer. Eric, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Vago, thanks for having me. I always enjoy these conversations. Uh, indeed, it's it's always a, a pleasure. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Um, Eric, we're coming out of a historic pandemic uh, with uh, an in-person Farm Bureau Air Show that we can all look forward to and another rocketry competition, which uh, I know is always uh, uh, a highlight of the event, especially uh, for, for you. Uh, we're facing uh, a potentially historic increase in defense spending. Uh, administration proposed the highest ever budget, and their, their lawmakers are talking perhaps about $100 billion more for defense. And unfortunately, because of the tragedy uh, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we're looking at uh, a rise in European defense spending. You know, against the, that backdrop, what's, what's the outlook for the industry and your membership, and, and what's shaping your strategy going forward? First, thanks for mentioning the uh, the air show. It's be, be good to get back to one of those after three years of not having one of the big summer air shows. And and our rocketry challenge is actually something we're quite proud of, middle schoolers and high schoolers that that are are excited about STEM uh, and and hopefully will will come into our industry or some adjacent industry because uh, we really need to keep the prime uh, the pump primed for for. Uh, for students interested in STEM. You know, that the outlook for the industry, aerospace and defense is not a monolithic industry. We, we cut across space, commercial aviation, defense. Uh, everybody was hit hard uh, by this pandemic. There, there were unprecedented things that we've had to deal with and are still dealing with. And it, it, it accelerated some problems that we were facing to include uh, the great resignation. Uh, this is an issue that was something that we have been facing on both the defense and non-defense side for as long as I've been uh, out of school and working uh, on the defense side, we have known that the workforce is aging and that we have each year an increasing percentage of the workforce that's eligible for retirement. And the pandemic just tipped a lot of people in that direction. And on the non-defense side, again, that, that workforce, that highly skilled, highly trained technical workforce has been an issue for a long time. And you mentioned pilots. That, that's been something we, certainly when I was undersecretary and acting secretary of the Air Force, we were focused on quite a bit. Um, and that's a, that is a ground, a, a, a pipeline, um, military pilots that feeds into civilian aviation, commercial airline pilots. So all of these issues were exacerbated uh, during, during COVID. And then uh, we have the supply chain disruptions from COVID, but also from what's happening in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. And then you add on top of this inflation. And a lot of, a lot of industry leaders have not had to deal with or, or uh, face inflation like we are right now. So all these things combined, um, we say we're coming out of COVID, hopefully, we all hope that, returning to the office, getting back together in person. But these issues haven't gone away. We still have to navigate through uh, these issues that existed before and that surfaced during COVID. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, about 
um, the spending outlook. Um, and then I want to ask you a little bit about supply chain and, and inflation and how we deal with those, right? I mean, because we've been talking to CEOs and discussing that pressure. Uh, your chairman, uh, Mike Petters, uh, who uh, is now uh, the vice chairman at uh, HII um, and, and was a chief executive until Chris Kastner replaced them just a couple of, uh, uh, about a month and a half ago. Give us your sense on where do you think defense spending is going to end up. Um, we have the administration proposing $773 billion. It's 813 if you include the Department of Energy accounts. Uh, but we've got lawmakers that are saying that there could be a solid $100 billion uh, or suggestions from lawmakers that there could be a solid $100 billion increase. That would obviously help the department deal with inflation, right, which is cutting into their buying power and, and to an extent driving some of these sort of tough choices the administration is arguing for. From your standpoint, where are we going to end up, you think, on defense spending? Well, I think you mentioned historically high defense spending. It all depends on how you measure what that spending is as a, as a percentage of GDP uh, in adjusted dollars. But I, I think the top line, we all, we focus on the top line uh, and it's, it's almost academic in some ways because it's important that we think about this as an investment. And we're seeing the the critical of importance of that now in, in two ways, I would argue, and they're, and they're very much related or overlapping. One is the supply chain and the industrial base. Um, we need to think of that as a capability in and of itself and make sure that we protect it, invest in it, so that it's there when we need it, which is what's happening right now as we surge to try and support Ukraine uh, in defending itself against the Russian invasion. But secondly, too, is... Um, is seeing what's happening uh, in Ukraine and understanding the value of deterrence. We, we tend to focus, a lot of people talk about defense spending and really I think we need to be thinking about investing in deterrence. What would have happened uh, or what more would be happening if we didn't have this great deterrence structure uh, with NATO and the alliances and partnerships that we have over there. And just look how everybody is rallying. There, there's a, there's a, a realignment going on right now. Uh, in terms of bringing countries, additional countries that want to join NATO, even Switzerland, actually uh, um, bumping off of its neutrality and, and talking about the war and uh, making statements about the war. And, and everybody wants American products. And that's, I think, an important thing for us to think about. We want to be the leaders of what's happening right now. And I think it's a, it's a positive thing about our industry and about our country that all these other countries are turning to us for that leadership and are turning to American industry for products to help with their deterrence strategies. One of the tensions, and, and certainly you saw this when you were in the Pentagon, right? The, the industry um, does not necessarily, you know, I mean, it's been a concern that the industry doesn't invest enough uh, on its own. It has a tendency of looking at the department to do that. So if, if you guys want us to make more um, you know, javelins or any other weapon, there's a tendency of industry to look to the government in order to do that. Um, inflation remains a challenge, although Mike McCord, the Pentagon comptroller, was clear that, you know, if commercial inflation is at 8.5%, he's like, look, we're on long-term contracts that that mitigate the cost to the department, even though there may, you know, and, and each of the primes have long-range contracts, right? I mean, so the inflation impacts are not as dramatic on government contracting, certainly. Um, how, how do... You know what? What is it as as the as the AIA president and CEO? What are some things that the association and the industry would like the government to be doing at this point better 
whether it's on inflation and inflation adjustments uh, and, and whether it's on specifically the issue of the arsenal of democracy restocking itself, right? I mean, we have been transferring a monumental amount of equipment to our Ukrainian friends, but I think foreign excess, excess to anything that we're, we're publicly discussing what, how do we how do we need to approach that to replenish our stocks? Because there are folks who are looking at this conflict to say, hey, this is a great opportunity to get ready for, say, Ta- uh, China, Taiwan. Uh, let me unpack that. Let me start with um, investment. Uh, industry companies make substantial investments in R&D on their own um, in anticipation of what the customer, in this case, the Pentagon, might want. What I would say is the clearest way to send a signal to industry and industry reacts very quickly is to, uh, to write and sign contracts. Uh, it's in certainly an in industry's interest uh, to respond to the clear demand signal of, of government of the Pentagon. But, but industry is leaning forward and making substantial investments in R&D. Since we're on this topic, one thing that is a priority of AIA right now is the R&D uh, tax credit. Uh, that was adjusted in, in 2017 with, with the tax package. Uh, whereas you used to be able to put $1 in research and development and you'd get $1 uh, as a deduction in that year, it's now amortized over five years. Mm-hmm. So if you put a dollar into R&D, you get 20 cents each year over five years, which is a disincentive to make that investment. Whereas China is actually doubling down on, on supporting private sector R&D investment, where they'll give you $2 of the tax credit for each dollar that you put in. So here's our, our main um, near peer competitor adversary against which we're measuring ourselves and they're moving in the opposite direction of doubling down on supporting and incentivizing private sector investment. And we're amortizing it over five years. So one thing we'd like government to do, Congress to do, uh, and there's broad bipartisan support for this, is to uh, adjust that back uh, to the way it used to be, which almost every other Western country uh, does as well, which is to allow that deduction in the year that the expense is made. So there is substantial investment. Um, there's a lot government can do to uh, incentivize that further. It's, it's actually something I've seen in this job working with industry that I didn't appreciate. And I don't think government appreciates that there are all sorts of things it can do to incentivize private sector investment. Um, that will benefit uh, our national security needs and challenges. Uh, on defense spending, because uh, we didn't really talk about that, where it's going, you know, it's been years and years and years and years of trade-offs, and we can argue about how much is the right amount, but based on what the Department of Defense is being asked to do, we haven't been um, supporting it, resourcing it properly. And there is broad bipartisan support for this defense budget, for defense spending as it's been, that's been very helpful for us during COVID as well. The the aerospace and defense industry uh, isn't um, perfectly bifurcated defense and non-defense. The supply chain is is shared in many ways. Many companies in the supply chain are working both defense and non-defense issues. It's a strategic risk mitigator for them. And when the non-defense side really shut down in COVID, nobody was traveling. So that impacts the whole industry, the airlines, the manufacturers, the service providers. Um, What helped and what kept that supply chain operating at least so that it could stay together uh, uh, during COVID was the defense spending that took place. So I think, um, I, I don't know where we'll end up on defense spending, but 
but we have broad bipartisan support for a foundation that is um, is pretty strong with a recognition that there's more that needs to be done. And, and, and we're seeing that again because of what's happening in Ukraine, keeping production lines viable so they can surge if you need them. And, and thinking about this more than just the United States, thinking about the needs of allies and partners as well. Um, this is pronounced now because of what Russia is doing in Ukraine as it has been in many years. Um, let me uh, ask you, I mean, it, um, are we going to need to make any inflation or supply chain adjustments? I mean, are you looking to the department uh, or to lawmakers for any changes, whether, uh, you know, and, and the dialogue you're having is the tri-service associations, right? I mean, the Aerospace Industries Association, National Defense Industrial Association, as well as the Professional Services uh, Council uh, have been regularly uh, meeting with the department to express the industry's views. Um, are, are there going to have to be policy changes, Defense Production Act, right? I mean, are, are there, whether on supply chain or, or, or inflation, do you think that um, there, there are collective actions that can be taken on this? So uh, first on, on inflation, yes. Um, the three associations uh, have, have been meeting with the Department of Defense, talking through these issues. The department has acknowledged it um, uh, publicly. We still don't know yet the impact of inflation. How long is it going to last? Um, what, what are the actual numbers uh, that the Department of Defense faces, which are different than you know, consumers face? Uh, but nonetheless, inflation is a real issue. So what we need is the, the adjustments in the contracts, which is, a, which is a normal thing we work through with the Department of Defense when there are variables playing out that weren't anticipated when the contract was written. Because, you know, when you're selling something to the Department of Defense, it's highly regulated. Uh, every single aspect of that contract uh, and the overhead of the companies is, is costed. Uh, and if, if something changes, then there's an adjustment made. So we're working through that right now. And it is true. I know, I know Comptroller Mike McCord said uh, in, in some contracts, is there are long lead buys and purchases for materials. Uh, and that's true, maybe on the contract as it hits the Department of Defense, but that might be squeezing some part of the supply chain that committed to a, a, a long lead price uh, and is now facing its own issues. So we have to we have to look at this not just as the primes dealing with the Department of Defense, but then all the way through the supply chain to see where there's squeezes taking place because of inflation. And it's not one size fits all. Uh, so that's part of the negotiations are going on. And that extra money uh, either, either comes in the form of lost capability or it comes in the form of extra money to adjust for inflation. And so that's obviously a congressional issue. What we need to make sure is that Congress doesn't account for inflation by adding extra money to the budget, but then directing that that much money be spent for something else. We need to make sure, A, that the additional money is there to account for inflation, and B, that it stays protected for the programs where inflation is, 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 is impacting price. Do um, I, I uh, this uh, topic just uh, hopped in my head, uh, but uh, titanium, Russia is a very, very important uh, supplier of titanium, titanium sponged and finished uh, titanium components. Uh, obviously, Russia is at war with the West effectively uh, and under uh, sanction. Um, any, I mean, how is that impacting or going to impact, right? I mean, there are companies that have said we're Russian titanium free. Uh, there are other companies that have said that we're not gonna use Russian titanium. Is, is this something that's a significant issue? And if so, 
what how is AIA looking to work through this, whether it's on the commercial side or on the defense side? So th- this is, I think, a perfect example of of where this government uh, private public private partnership is so important. Uh, there are there are many examples of that. We all want to wean off of of uh, of resourcing from Russia, a number of rare earth minerals and, and important uh, elements come out of China, for example. Um, that's a place where government really can step in and help with investment to figure out uh, where we might get these materials from other places, how we might process these materials. With specific to titanium, yes, that's an issue. Um, companies uh, have been trying to make adjustments in the supply chain for a number of years now because of what happened in Crimea. So there had already been some activity taking place to include stockpiling, but also figuring out where they can source this material from countries other than Russia. So it's not the the Ukraine thing just accelerated uh, some of these efforts, but they were already underway. But it is an indicator of how we are a global economy, not just in terms of how we source, but also how we sell. And so we need to think very carefully as we talk about readjusting or onshoring or reshoring, whatever the term is that you use, recognizing the that this is a very complicated issue. And it's not that people are um, opposed to making readjustments, but we need to think through carefully what the second and third order effects are of that and make sure that we have solutions for that. Um. Eric elegantly uh, said you uh, first saw my uh, next question, which is uh, on Buy American. The president uh, recently signed a Buy American executive order uh, that's uh, spurred concerns across our globalized industry. Uh, While there appear to be mechanisms that allow for exemptions, there are concerns that they could be interpreted in a way that not only hurts the Pentagon's access to the best technology at the best price, but also hurt innovation and drive allies and partners away from uh, American uh, uh, solutions uh, at the end of the day, right? I mean, American industry is successful because it's go-to, great product for the great price and certainly tied to a superpower who, who, will, who will have your back. You're an American trade group representing American industry to the American government. What's the right balance here? Uh, you know, as we do this reshoring, as we look toward more by American to make sure that, you know, we, we don't do something that actually net, net, net hurts us. Well, I, I think the key word is balance, uh, which involves uh, and getting that balance right uh, has all stakeholders working together uh, to figure out what that balance is. You know, we're a net exporting industry, um, substantial exports. And one of my members once said, um, buying American can make it hard to sell American. Uh, if you are trying to reshore everything, Um, you're encouraging other countries in some ways to do that as well. And we need to remember that our ability to export also uh, supports jobs in in the United States. And and it's true too that part of, so I, 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 you know, we are a global economy. We're not gonna be able to unwind from that. I think everyone accepts uh, that that, that a rebalance or some new balance uh, is probably healthy. That certainly was brought to bear during COVID as we saw some you know, pretty significant supply chain perturbations. Bringing some things back to the United States will, will mitigate that uh, and solve some of the problems that, that we're facing, for example, in uh, electronics, chips, and so forth. But we need to be careful too that these partnerships that we have um, with countries around the world uh, have have value to them as well. And our ability, again, to export 
um, to access labor, labor markets that we can't necessarily replace here. We have to think about that. It's not just about importing and exporting and the goods and what that does to the economy. It's also about accessing labor markets that we, that we can't replicate here because it's hard enough right now with what we're doing in the United States uh, to build that workforce. And, and this may be nonetheless the right answer, but in some cases that will mean increased costs, uh, consumer goods, but also to the Department of Defense. Uh, if, if, we, if we bring it back here and build those labor markets and build those markets here at greater cost, uh, that's going to make uh, the cost to the, the ultimate consumer, customer, in our case, the Department of Defense, uh, greater. But um, as, as you and I have talked, right, I mean, that's a strategic investment. And so something that, uh, as, as it, right, you're, 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 you're safeguarding yourself for what you might otherwise have. And so you're, you have to be ready to be able to pay more money for that. I think so. I, yeah, I you know, saying buy American writ large is an awfully large elephant to eat. So how do you, you know, how would you prioritize this? And I think looking at our experiences during COVID and where the supply chain was most disrupted and thinking about, um, you know, what's going on in Ukraine right now, thinking about uh, China as, uh, you know, a, a partner, a competitor, an adversary, which is why it's so complicated. I think that gives you where, what you might prioritize, what for uh, economic security and national security would be most important or most advantageous for us to bring back. Certainly semiconductors, uh, everybody's talking about that. Uh, but there are other things um, that I think we prioritize as well, but, but always recognizing that we have benefits um, to these global partnerships. And we're seeing that play out right now again in, in Europe. And so we don't wanna undermine that. You know, If you wanna sell um, aircraft to another country and you're competing against some other country that's selling aircraft, part of that mix is, is the purchasing company wanting some of the economic benefit of, of that purchase. And these are uh, important parts of the negotiations and important parts of competition that we need to make sure we don't limit for American companies. Let me ask you, um, I, I, I wanna get to the question of uh, pandemic uh, lessons learned and uh, on, on both uh, commercial and military manpower and how we have to address that. But first I want to ask you, the administration um, has a lot of very expert people on it, uh, mutual friends of ours, uh, just as the last administration had had uh, very qualified uh, folks and again, mutual, mutual friends. Uh, but there is a concern this administration has been moving extremely slowly. We, we now have uh, build a plant uh, in uh, the job at ANS, Heidi Shu already there. We have service secretaries, but still don't have ambassadors and actually at a working level uh, don't don't have all the acquisition chief jobs uh, filled uh, across across the department uh, Eric um, is is this impeding the um, association's ability to work with the administration and more broadly you know the administration in which you served was all about try to do things faster move that ball faster we've heard from Ellen Lord, uh, her concern, uh, the, the last ATNL and the preceding uh, acquisition and sustainment secretary, uh, undersecretary, who said, hey, we're, we're not moving fast enough. From your standpoint, both from dialogue with industry, do, do we have the right manpower in place now? Um, and, and what are some of the recommendations that you, uh, your service, uh, your uh, other association counterparts, but also your membership are making the case to the department to be able to move things along? 
faster. So I, I would like to see, um, I would have liked to have seen nominees in the pipeline sooner. That said, uh, they're not getting through the Senate. <laughs> um, so even if we had more nominees, uh, uh, you mentioned ambassadors, the confirmation process is just bogged down. It's, it, was, it was not a fun process for me to go through either time and it's substantially slower and more difficult now. And so it's, I think that that's a, that's a serious problem because I think it's dissuading um, people from considering government jobs. I, I give a lot of credit uh, in the previous administration, this administration, uh, to people who are willing to put their hand up and, and go through the process. And, and I say this as someone who has been in an acting capacity three times in my career, acting secretary of the Air Force, acting undersecretary of the Army, and acting secretary of the Army before I was secretary. Um, it's not the same as, as being a Senate confirmed. It's particularly different if it's a career official. We have very good career civilians in government, um, but they're, if they're in an acting capacity, they're trying not to chew through trade space for whoever's gonna come in and be their boss and be confirmed. And so it has been very difficult for industry not to have confirmed partners in place to work with. We, we've had good people, good dialogue, uh, but it's not the same as having those people in place. So, you know, I, I think, um, I, I don't know. I think, I, I think this administration was operating during the transition on the premise that it wouldn't have the Senate. Georgia surprised everybody uh, and um, maybe didn't pivot as fast to get some of the Senate confirmed people nominated. But even if they had, a lot of them would still be, as we're seeing right now, sitting, uh, waiting through the confirmation process. There are, there are blanket holds on departments, uh, which is just not, I don't think is healthy for the operation of the executive branch. Um, is it impeding uh, your ability to work policy uh, at this point, uh, given, um, you know what I mean, the organization goes well beyond you and has working groups and policy committees, right, where the membership as well as uh, the AIA team is working. And I mean, is there anything at this point that is that is impeding progress? Absolutely. I, you know, we we continue to have dialogue and work on issues. And we, I think we have a we have a shared agenda uh, with the Department of Defense. But, you know, when COVID hit and we had Ellen Lord in as the undersecretary, we were able to move quickly uh, and, and really shore up um, the aerospace and defense industrial base, in part because of what the Department of Defense under her leadership was able to achieve. You can't do that as quickly or as uh, with as much impact without having that Senate confirmed official in place. You, you can make progress and changes on the margin, but it's not the same as having that person in the seat who really not only has the authority, but is empowered to use the authority to, to make those decisions, to make those changes. We, we would have been in a very different situation, I think, two years ago when COVID hit had there not been a Senate confirmed undersecretary for acquisition and sustainment. You mentioned uh, the pandemic, um, obviously historic. It's killed uh, more than 1 million Americans. Uh, world Health Organization today reported that 15 million around the world uh, may have perished. Uh, it's been a challenge for us, uh, us all. It's uh, unfortunately been far more divisive than it likely needed to be uh, and caused tensions in organizations and, and, and everywhere else. Um, you know, AIA, NDIA, and, and PSC and other organizations work together 
to represent their members' interests, to be an interface with government, to figure out the best ways to do this. And it was mask mandates and vaccine mandates and all of these challenges uh, that, that were work. What are the lessons learned from this experience, Eric, to do this better the next time, whether that's in a year's time, 10 years, or 100 years? Well, I think, so there were a number of things that happened very quickly that, that I would say are our lessons learned. And so one good thing is we, we, we understood that. Uh, from the jump. First is liquidity. Uh, when, when companies go into crisis, they need access to capital. And uh, Congress stepped up, the previous administration stepped up, the Federal Reserve stepped up, uh, and that helped um, with liquidity for, for our companies. Then we realized um, uh, that we needed to make sure the industry was declared essential. Uh, the Department of Defense, Ellen Lord in particular, was a leader on that, making sure that we could cut through because every municipality, local, state had a, reacted differently to this. And these our, our companies are in every one of the states and the bigger companies are operating in multiple jurisdictions as well. And so we needed that declaration of essentiality um, so we could keep everyone working and not have to figure out um, different rules in, in different places. We moved pretty quickly to what is still our primary focus. And, and in some ways, these two things are one and the same, and that's the supply chain and the workforce. How do we keep the supply chain whole throughout of this? And the, the most efficient way to do that was to keep it working. So that meant you know, the Department of Defense, uh, that customer kept buying. We had a good budget, a good defense budget, and the Department of Defense leaned forward and accelerated payments. Uh, to the prime contractors who then accelerated the payments through the supply chain. Uh, again, it's back to that liquidity flowing of capital issue to keep that supply chain whole, which also helped on the non-defense side, again, because of that shared supply chain. And then a, a series of things we did to keep the workforce whole. So on the defense side, um, this is an industry that, that worked through COVID from the very start before there were vaccines, before we had the, the understanding and the, and, and, the, and the safety mechanisms that we have in place now and figured out how to do it, how to do it safely and, and to keep delivering. On the non-defense side, um, that focus of you know, the, the customer, the airline wasn't flying anymore, that obviously impacted the manufacturers. Uh, so we worked with Congress uh, to, to find ways to keep that workforce whole during that pivot until flying resumed uh, so that because commercial air travel is a is an economic um, force multiplier. And once flying came back, we wanted to make sure that the whole ecosystem was ready to ramp up very quickly. So we didn't have to rehire and retrain the workforce. And so we had the American uh, Manufacturers Jobs Program, which helped a lot of our companies keep their workforce whole, keep them off unemployment, keep them with their benefits, particularly their health benefits during a pandemic, and have them ready when the airlines started to surge again, which is what we're seeing now. And there are still leftover funds from that program that have been swept up, um, but there are a number of, of, of obvious targets in the aerospace industry, retraining, reskilling, upskilling, um, that I think can help uh, respond to the needs of the airline industry as it, as it returns to flight. Um, let me ask you uh, briefly uh, to, you know, there have been some news reports of, of discord in part over uh, COVID policy, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity to be able to, to address, uh, address the situation. Yeah, I think, you know, we're dealing with an unprecedented uh, couple of years 
Um, and, and then you add, uh, you know, we already talked about the, the workforce issues that existed before COVID came along and, and accelerated a number of problems, inflation on top of that. And, it's, um, and, and we're in an environment where everything is kind of hypercharged. Uh, and that's not unique to us. It's not unique to association world. It's sort of happening to all organizations. AIA is a, has 320 members. We're, we are a consensus-based organization. That's, that requires cooperation, collaboration, compromise. That's not easy in the best of times. And, and when you try to work through what were very difficult issues and, and continue to be difficult issues for companies, um, it just made it that much more difficult. And, and sometimes um, some companies don't get what they want out of that, that compromise process. And each company is, is free to decide how it wants to use an association and, and what it wants to do individually. Um, but we, we, we are still... We still represent aerospace and defense and are still focused on doing the important hard work to help this industry and these important companies um, deal with the problems they're facing right now. Uh, noting, obviously, that right every organization has tensions uh, in it. Um, let me ask you one, one last question. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have that much time and would love to have you back on. But very briefly, you mentioned at the top, right, we have a uh, shortage of, of pilots, which has only gotten worse and is going to get much, much worse. And we've also had a great retirement that impacts uh, actually the ability of defense contractors to produce. And we're hearing glimmers of this on programs. Hey, we've lost a lot of, of, of folks what's a more national effort, uh, Eric, that we need to devote to this, right? I mean, is this something that we had, you know, after Sputnik, where the government gives tax credits and benefits to people uh, who want to get technical educations and engineering and go into aviation? Do, do we need a bigger answer to this? Uh, I don't necessarily always want to look to the government, but it would seem like this is something that government may have to be solving. What's, what's the way to look at it from your perspective? I, I think um, this is one of the key public-private partnerships that's so important. Uh, industry, uh, our companies do so much to, to work in the local educational systems, provide mentoring opportunities, apprenticeship opportunities, even to, to train people that they've hired uh, with skills that they would hope people can bring into the workforce um, uh, organically. I think, I think it is has to be a larger effort. We, we, we don't, we have, we have a shortage, we have workforce shortage and it's not trained properly. And I think that starts at a very young age. We need to make more of an investment in, um, in STEM education. And we need to think broadly about this. We're, we're, we're not looking for everyone to be a PhD engineer. Um, we also need highly skilled uh, workers. Um, they, they need the training, they need the skills, they need to understand um, STEM and have that as a foundation. And there's just not enough of that for not just for our industry, but for all of the industries that are involved in innovation and technology. Eric, it is an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us uh, and look forward to having you back on again uh, really soon because we want to do something on the future of, uh, of work uh, and the industry and, and some priorities, uh, obviously, going forward. Thanks so very, very much. Thanks, Fago. Always a pleasure. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.